Another edition of The Ladies' Room. She is Jane McManus. I'm Julie DeCaro. We are your hosts from Deadspin, and we are here to talk about sports balls. <laughs> yeah, can't so, get enough of them. Can't get enough sports balls. Um, the women, the U.S. women's national soccer team is back this week. That was great. But the Australian Open was sort of the uh, the big event happening. Um, and not sort of the big event. It was the big event. You, I know, are much more versed in tennis than I am. I am merely a fan, whereas you have covered it professionally. What was your takeaway from the Australian Open, Jane? So the this was actually something that I kind of felt, and as you know, we've talked about this on the show. It's been a long pandemic winter, and I feel like a lot of, I haven't been as excited for a lot of sports, but I did get excited about the Australian. And I got excited about it because um, Serena Williams and Naomi Osaka played in a semifinal. And to me, it just, obviously Naomi Osaka won that and then went on to win the entire thing. Um, and it just, to me is, and and Osaka is a Japanese player, but she does have roots in the United States. Her grandparents are Jamaican and lived in Long Island. And she kind of spent a lot of time there and was raised there. So, you know, we can, we can stake a little bit of a claim, um, to her, I think. Um, and, and it just felt fantastic to see these two players play each other. And because, you know, Serena Williams probably not going to get that Margaret Court tying 24th Grand Slam singles title, which is really too bad. However, she's a heck of a lot better than Margaret Court ever was. And I, I feel really comfortable feeling saying that she's the best woman to play professional tennis, uh, given her just incredible uh, span of decades playing and not only that, the the legacy that she's created, and one of the one of I, I I think it's safe to say that that legacy is is part of it is Naomi Osaka, uh, who looked to Serena growing up, and and Serena's part of the reason she picked up a racket. Uh, and you can see throughout women's tennis the diversity, the women of color who are playing and playing at a high level, you know, and uh, you know Coco Gauff, Madison Keys, Sloane Stevens, you could go on and on, and a lot of those women are playing now because they saw the Williams sisters early on. And I just think it goes to show how much this game of tennis and the kind of camaraderie and the kind of leadership that you see out of Serena Williams, it's a lot, it's a lot bigger than the sport. And I thought that was on display. Yeah. And you wrote a really great piece about it over at Deadspin. Um, and, and I think it had a great headline too, something like, um, Naomi Osaka is not Serena Williams' rival. She's her legacy, which I thought was incredibly powerful um, way to look at it. It, it is, It's hard because I think that when you are like in your 40s and you're starting to realize that, you know, there is a generation coming behind you, um, Serena has been so good for so long. Um, it, it's almost like you feel like it was never going to end. And now I really, I so want her to beat Margaret Court's record. <laughs> yeah. Especially in Australia. I mean, we Margaret talked Court's about, gotta go. Yeah, she's gotta go. <laughs> gotta go. <laughs> we talked with Martina about, you know, how much Margaret Court's gotta go. Um right. and um, you know, as soon as that match started, and even though Serena was moving great, you could just see how much easier it looked for Naomi Osaka than it did for Serena. 
um, yeah. which was right out of the bat. I was like, oh, no, you know, well, even though you Serena can tell still, she was. Go ahead. I was just because Serena, she still has the power on her serves and in her strokes, but her footwork isn't as good. And after three games, her footwork started to really fall off. And, you know, when she's playing somebody like Osaka, that's got the same kind of powerful ground strokes that Serena brought to the game. I mean, you know, that just makes it a lot harder. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, you know, it's heartbreaking. Like, I feel like I live and die with Serena's motions every time, with her emotions every time she plays. Um, and afterwards, when people are asking her about retirement and she sort of left crying, you know, left the, the uh, interview <laughs> yeah. crying, like, my heart just breaks because it, it's like, you know, it, this is always the way in sports media that instead of celebrating how great someone has been and still is, um, we've got to, you know, sort of push it and try to figure out like, oh, so is this the end for you? And I mean, let's, I mean, I, I feel like of all the things that she has gone through, everything at Indian Wells, all the like horrible characters of her that people have, have created, cartoonish drawings, everything that she's been through in her life and Venus as well, they both deserve to go out on their own terms. So, I mean, can we just enjoy her for as long as we have her? Yeah, I a hundred percent agree. Um, there are two things I think that about what happened last week and over the weekend that really show how poorly we frame sports or how reflexively we frame sports. And one of them is this thing like the second you're not at your peak form, you've, we're, when are you leaving? Can we pack your bags for you? Did you check under the bed to make sure you didn't leave anything in the hotel room? I mean, it's relentless. Like people should be able to play at the level of, of greatness still, even if it's not their peak performance. This isn't Ali getting rope-a-doped. Serena Williams should be able to play. There's no physical problem with her playing. She's not keeping other players from playing. You know, we should be able to watch her play for as long as she would like. I think that framing is very much kind of a relic of this kind of, this competitive thinking that is really antiquated and we need to examine again. Yeah, I agree. And no one is asking Rafa Nadal those questions after he lost. You know, 100%. I mean, it, yeah. And and the other the other framing that I think is so flawed that we saw this week is um, that Naomi Osaka and and Serena Williams have to to be rivals. They cannot be cooperating on some level. They have to actually dislike each other. Women have to catfight. There's right. not, there aren't enough platforms to go around. They are in direct competition. Only one of them can be of can can take anything away from this matchup. And I think that's also completely incorrect. Um, and I think it shows, you know, we, we've seen this now with the way they're willing to share their platform with other women and other athletes and other leagues, the way they've invested in the National Women's Soccer League. I mean, this idea that women have to be in complete competition with each other 100% of the time, and there can be no sharing or cooperation. I hope that goes away as well. Well, yeah. And I mean, that benefits the patriarchy, right? I mean, and that's who pushes that narrative. I mean, when I, when, when my radio job ended and there was about a six month span in there, maybe more, maybe a year before they hired another woman and immediately people online were like, oh, Julie didn't publicly congratulate her. They must hate each other. Julie, aren't you going to congratulate Layla and stuff like that? And Layla and I are friends and I was happy that she got that job and people just could not wrap their heads around that. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the way it is, not just in sports, but in life. Uh, exactly right. That there is the, you know, we've seen this in sport departments. There's the 
job for women who covers women's sports. There's all, you know, all of these these stereotypes and that if there are going to be two women and oftentimes there is competition or there has been in the past and, you know, and it makes it really unpleasant. And And I love that the modeling that they set for, you know, for, for, for being friends or, or compatriots off the court. And, you know, we, and, and I just think that's right, that women have been pitted against each other for too long. And I'm tired of seeing it in a boring old narrative that a bunch of male sports writers put out there as well. Yeah, I agree. 100%. So, oh, you know, one thing that struck me while watching Naomi Osaka, who I believe is Haitian, right? Not Jamaican. She's Haitian and Japanese. Oh, sorry. Yes, that's No, right. I just want to make I, sure we identify her correctly. You know what? You're 100%. And I apologize for making that mistake. Um, I, I thought warm, sunny, and yes. <laughs> embracing. Exactly. Correct. Yeah, Caribbean. Yes. Right. Um, anyway, um, you know, I'm just watching her, and Chris Everett's making this big deal out of, you know, she doesn't want to look at Serena. She won't look her in the eye. And it was like, well, whatever. Um, but, you know, the confidence that this young woman has um, to go out there, the poise that she has at, at her age, to me, is just remarkable. And I think that, like, you know, and people have, of course, she's got, you know, of course, she's confident. She's beaten her hero three times. I could beat my hero three times and I would still be sitting here like, I suck. I'm sorry. I don't know why I'm terrible. But she just has such poise and such grace. And I, I, I was looking at her and I was thinking the way that she carries herself is the is what I hope for the next generation that they just walk into a room with all the confidence in the world and all the belief in themselves in the world, because I know that that's something that the generations before them weren't necessarily instilled with. So I am so impressed with her and um, I am long may she reign. I hope we see her for many, many years to come. Yeah. And and this is why tennis is such a great sport is that you get to see people evolve and you get to know them pretty well because it's an individual sport. And when she, I just remember covering her at Wimbledon and I think it was 2018 and um, she came into the press room and she is so funny. Like she's sneaky, funny. Like she is just, it is a dry wit that kind of, you know, taps you on the shoulder and, (laughs) you know, kind of surprises you. But I I love that, um, that she has this personality that is, you know, kind of just very kind of knowing and smart and, um, and she is, yeah, absolutely. She she was always able to kind of be herself, but she has gotten a lot more confident. And uh, it's just been great to see her come into her own when it comes to, um, you know, her social justice advocacy and mm-hmm. the masks that she wears. It's all part of the same thing. And just to see uh, a young woman who's completely confident with being herself and not in a cookie cutter mold, you know, she really does have this background that's very different. Her you know, her parents and her story and the way she grew up and uh, everything. It just, um, yeah, she belongs to, you know, she's a demographic of one and yet ha- belongs to everyone, I feel like. Yeah, she's terrific. Um, it, it's, it, I mean, I was rooting for Serena just because I think, you know, it's the same reason I root for Tiger. It's like, oh, come on, old legs, old, you know, <laughs> like you've had a million <laughs> injuries and, you know, um, but I, it's impossible to root against her. Um, so yeah, it was, I was hoping that the match would have been longer, would have been, you know, a little bit closer than it wound up being, but you know, when she's playing like that, I don't know what you're supposed to do with Naomi Osaka. She's just, she's dominating. And when she can take Serena Williams out of her game that quickly, it's, um, it's tough to see who's going to challenge her going forward. Well, we shall see. We shall see. So Uh, We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with this week's guest, Erica Vanstone. Stick around. 
Joining us now in the ladies' room is the executive director of the Women's Flat Track Derby Association. It is one Erica Van Stone. How are you doing, Erica? I am doing great today. It is snowing outside, so I don't have anywhere to be. Just hanging out with y'all. Yeah, that's awesome. As, as I'm recording in my closet, um, which is now my new studio. Um, Jane, I don't know where you're recording from, but we are in the deep freeze here in Chicago. Obviously, things are far, far worse in Texas than for all of us, but it's been uh, it's been a winter. Yeah, it's a winter that just kind of reminds you that we're in the middle of a pandemic and there is no end in sight and it's very there's no help coming there's no no (laughs) one who oh that is so how it feels (laughs) it really does so but this is why it's so exciting because in a couple of weeks we're gonna see like little shoots coming out of the ground and it's gonna be really exciting and it's just the relief is gonna be amazing and i'm gonna i'm really looking forward to that moment I feel like at some point soon, everyone you know is going to be vaccinated. It's going to be warm outside. We're going to be able to go outside and sit and maybe even talk to your neighbors without wearing a mask. And and that is sort of what I'm living for right now. Exactly right. And to help us get there, I would love to talk to Erica about some of the things that she's done with WUFDA. And just to a little bit of background, I played roller derby for seven years. Of course, I have to say that. Um, and this is the organization that I played for. So, uh, but I haven't been a, I haven't been a, a skater now for what five years. So I, I'm a little I'm a little removed. So it was with real interest though um, that I watched this last spring as Erica and some of the really smart women who play roller derby came up with an interesting plan to get back to playing after COVID. And I, I just, I wanted to bring her on because I think you guys have done some of the most innovative thinking when it comes to this. And part of it is they're not a for-profit league. They're not owned by owners. It's a, it's a grassroots, uh, player-owned and operated um, league. And I just, I want to, Erica, could you just address how that kind of changes the focus on what you, how you were approaching uh, what happened in the spring? Yeah. And, and the first thing I want to say is, Jane, it's never too late to come back to roller derby. <laughs> I'll just put that out there. We'll talk about wait. it. We'll talk about it later. Um, so, you know, the Women's Sweat Track Derby Association uh, was sort of, um, it's interesting that we talk about the challenges that Texas is facing right now, because it was born and raised in Austin, Texas, uh, around the turn of the millennium. And, it was really born out of the idea that that athletes should and could have a huge say in how the sport that they play is managed and operated. And although we've gone through a number of transitions uh, through the years about what that looks like, it's still very much part of our core values. So um, if you have a group of athletes who are making the decisions, the decisions decisions are bound to be different than what are happening out there in in modern sports today. So I think that that is a it's it's a small but radical shift. It's a small but radical difference between what most of sports is doing and what we're doing. So uh, I actually had visited and I can't believe it's over a year ago now. I'd actually been visiting Europe um, for a roller derby conference. And I remember going through Copenhagen and, um, Copenhagen is one of the, the places that we've gone through to play, uh, roller derby in Scandinavia. And, you know, 
Americans enjoy tremendous privilege outside of the United States when traveling in certain areas. And by certain areas, I mean other sort of uh, white colonizing areas. So I went through Copenhagen and it was the first time anybody had ever asked me where I had been, what I had been doing. Um, and, and the same thing happened when I went through Toronto. So I knew pretty quickly when I went through these ports and people were asking Americans what they'd been up to, that there was something afoot. Uh, so we came back from uh, the oh. conference in Europe and we were like, we should probably prepare for something catastrophic. Uh, and I think over the course of this time last year, we were trying to figure out how good of a job the U.S. was going to do at shutting down the borders. Turns out, not the greatest. Uh, and I think that that level of uh, oversight kind of continued throughout the, um, the entire Trump administration management of the pandemic. And we knew that uh, as an American-based sport that was trying to manage a global conversation for competition, we were going to have to do this work ourselves. There was no, uh, you know, the, in the U.S., as opposed to a lot of the European countries that we work with, those countries have a very strong tie between government and sport. Like a lot of our uh, roller derby leagues in Europe have national governing bodies that they work with. And all of those regulatory bodies were coming up with uh, guidelines of their own uh, recommendations as quickly as they could for sport. In America, uh, it is a very for-profit commercialized system. And even though there are some uh, sort of national governing body conversations at the Department of State with like the IOC competitive pathways, we're on our own. So, uh, you know, yay, capitalism. Uh, but that's what we did. We sat down and uh, we put out the call to members of our community in roller derby and said, hey, we know that there are many uh, smart humans out there who work in all kinds of industries, including epidemiology. So we, we had a few folks step forward uh, who are epidemiologists, infection control specialists, um, primary care physicians uh, who really sat down with us to put together these plans. And it was based on the idea that we collectively as a sport did not want to spread COVID-19. Uh, and I think, Jane, you and I have talked a lot about how like uh, some of the other sports leagues and organizations seem to have had some baseline amount or percentage of COVID that they were just okay with. And we never felt that way. Yeah. And, and not only that, you know, Julie and I have covered professional sports for a long time. And, and I've personally been incredibly disappointed um, by the way that uh, particularly the NCAA has dealt with it uh, when it comes to basketball and football. Those are unpaid athletes. They're young people. Uh, and to have them all be infected a certain percentage you know, are going to be, most of them are going to be absolutely fine, but you are potentially going to have a certain percentage of that cohort that is not. And so what are we risking that cohort for? Um, it's not to get life-saving supplies to sick people in Texas or freezing people. It's, it is for a game. And I just felt that was, um, that was different. So the idea of keeping people safe, uh, not sp spreading the virus unnecessarily, 
What a concept. Exactly right. Exactly right. It seems like a no-brainer. And yet, again and again, we've seen professional leagues put something else, money, um, visibility, broadcast rights, whatever it is, ahead of player safety. Well, and, you know, not only that, Jane, but Erica, Jane and I have have been talking about the fact that, you know, at some point, someone is going to look back at sports when they look at this entire last 10 years, and I don't even know what they're going to make of it, but they're going to, I mean, we're going to find out at some point that sports and professional sports and NCAA sports contributed significantly to keeping this thing going and spreading it. I just don't think there's, there's any way of getting around that. So, um, I'm, you know, and we've heard from, from reporters in, um, you know, that cover major pro sports, that it's all window dressing that behind the scenes, they don't feel safe. Um, so what did you guys do differently? I think we the the difference was we we made that determination outright. We collectively sat down and we said, "Listen, we just don't feel like uh, putting people's lives at risk is worth playing a game, is worth playing a sport." And for us to say that is actually pretty huge because we don't make a lot of money. We are an amateur sport. The WFTDA is a 501c3. We rely on membership dues and events to survive. But we were effectively looking ourselves in the mirror and saying, we cannot live with ourselves if because of our desire to play this sport, we take lives or put lives at risk. And I think... I don't know why that's so radical, right? Like, Julie, you laughed about it, but it does feel like a radical statement to come forward and say, it is not worth this uh, to, to actually take or put lives at peril. A couple of things about that that relate particularly to roller derby. Um, number one, you don't know, it's a full contact sport. There's no flag football when it comes to derby. Masks aren't going to help you. Masks are not going to help. So there are lots of that you have to you have to be very I think conscientious about how you're doing that. You don't know uh, there are a lot of players who have pre-existing conditions in other ways that don't affect their ability to play the sport, but would definitely affect their ability to get well. But the other thing about derby is that it is a community in the truest sense of what a community is. The women who play roller derby are there for each other on the court, off the court, all, you know, every in every possible way you can imagine, and. Um, and it's a, it's, it's a lot of social interaction and losing that is big. Like it's a big deal. This was not an easy decision to make, I'm sure. No, it wasn't an easy decision to make. And it's still not a comfortable place for a lot of our members to be. Um, because we are a global organization, we have members who are in New Zealand, members who are in Australia, and, uh, they're able to play roller derby. They're able to continue playing the sport that we all love. So I think there's um, there's a collective sense of equity around these conversations, right? Like the we're actually going to be putting out um, another version of our return to play guidelines in the next two weeks. And one of the things that it includes is a statement about uh, vaccines and vaccinations because everybody's been asking us, well, how does the vaccine change the conversation? Uh, but the World uh, Health Organization and the UN have been putting together conversations around how uh, vaccine equity is going to dramatically um, impact the world for years to come. Because uh, 
I think they said something like 75% of the vaccinations that have been happening are, are happening in just a small number of countries globally. So um, we, we have to reckon with that as well. There's an equity level conversation about how the pandemic management has unfolded, not just in the United States, but beyond the United States. And if we're a global sport, we have to kind of look that in the eye and think about it hard. Well, one of the other things that I wanted to get to with you, because this is another issue that has been coming up nationally, is the anti-trans legislation that's been happening across the country um, with multiple states coming up with with um, different proposals that would ultimately ex- exclude trans players from from recreational competition. Um and and roller derby has wrestled with this over the years. And and I remember when I was playing, so back in this was probably 2010 or so, um, Wufta came up with its first policy. Uh, and and I just I know that it's changed a lot and there's been a lot of you know discussion and and, and I think I think the that you all and have evolved a lot when it comes to how this works. But but trans players have been playing roller derby for decades. And I just wanted to know, what do you think of, you know, how does, how can you make it so, I mean, how do you address this conversation, first of all? Because you're talking about the humanity of people um, as though it's an abstract concept when really you're just talking about people. And, you know, how how do you even have those conversations now? And where do you look back at where you started 10 years ago and where you've come from? Yeah, I, I think the first thing that I can say are trans women are women. And that is um, you're here again. It sounds like a radical concept, right? Um, but I we've learned uh, actually, you know, on a number of fronts, we've learned by causing harm, and we have had to reckon with that and continue to reckon with that in a number of ways. So, for example, uh, the policies that you're referencing, Jane, we put together early on um, policies that we thought were actually. Um, pretty uh, progressive at the time uh, over a decade ago where basically, you know, for the, the, the policy essentially stated for, for the most part, uh, we think it's totally cool for trans skaters to skate within our competitive pathways unless somebody calls into question um, your uh, hormone levels, in which case we have the right to ask about them, uh, right? We thought at the, at the time that that was like a, a fairly progressive stance. Um, but the harm that that caused was actually pretty immediate. And I skate locally with uh, Philly Roller Derby, and Philly is one of the founding uh, leagues of the WFTDA. And they came forward and they said, actually, WFTDA, your policy is crap. Trans women are women. You really need to revisit this. So it took a a few years, but leadership finally kind of uh, really did some some digging around the harm that had been caused by the policy and uh, the culture that the policy created. Right. That was actually more important um, to us and the, the, the more important determining factor. Are we welcoming enough are we creating? Uh, and I think that that was actually some of the um, some of the criti- critique around the North Carolina uh, uh, so-called bathroom bill uh, that they put together. It was eventually uh, repealed and rolled back, but not at the point where you're actually um, 
creating punitive measures for people who discriminate. Uh, so that was really another issue that we worked in. We we changed the policy uh, in in uh, roughly five years ago. Uh, gosh, it's maybe a little bit more than that now because it's 2021. Um, so we changed the policy so that uh, essentially um, we welcome trans women, we welcome uh, gender expansive, we welcome non-binary part participants, and however you are identifying is how we are accepting you. Um, and that feels like a radical concept uh, for a lot of sports. And I think you're right. There are many, um, many issues that are being raised right now. And, and I'm, I really want to understand why it is now that states in the United States, I think the um, Human Rights Campaign was just profiling recently that there are a handful of states that are hearing legislation over the past few uh, weeks. Some of them are anti-trans bills that are related to medical treatment. Some of them are sports related. Mm. Um, and in particular, World Rugby came forward in October and essentially banned trans participants from women's competitive pathways. Uh, and I've been working with a number of folks in um, international gay rugby and rugby for all, trying to strategize how we can engage the sports community around the idea that trans women are women and should be playing in women's competitive pathways. Well, it's funny because, you know, when whenever we have these conversations and we had one with when we had Martina Navratilova on and then we had Chris Mosier on uh, a couple weeks ago. And it's funny because whenever people start talking about the science, the science shows this. And the only thing you really the only thing I really have to respond to that is to say trans women are women. And, and it feels like, you know, like it's not enough. But one of the things that Chris Mosier pointed out was that all these people, um, you know, making these, making, you know, all passing these laws and proposing these laws, there really is no science behind this. And that, so I, I guess, you know, and one of the things that we keep talking about on this show is, are, is trans women invading sports and like taking things away from women really a problem? Is this really a thing that's happening? And and by and large, I think we've sort of realized that it's not. So I think that you're exactly right. And like, why now is this suddenly such a huge issue to men, white men in Utah who have never cared about high school girls sports ever in their lives, but now they feel the need to get involved? Well, that's kind of the problem is that these are not legislative issues that constituents are bringing forward. These are legislative issues that special interest groups are bringing forward. And to, to the point about science, right? Like that is, a, that is something that's been brought forward pretty actively in the rugby community as justification for these discriminatory policies. But science has, so-called science, has been used to police women's bodies for century, full stop. Centuries, I should say. And so the idea that this is any different is preposterous. This is yet another place of uh, suppression and oppression um, and a continuance of policing women's bodies in the name of so-called safety, in the name of so-called science. Right. And, and that's why I get upset about it. Go ahead, Jane. Yeah, it's, it's very patriarchal, the way that this whole thing is framed, as though certain, certain women have to be protected from other women, which, I mean, I think, and, and this is why I look to roller derby, 
um, because I feel like it is a successful model. So yeah, I mean, and I, and I know that there have been real pitfalls and there have been people who felt excluded. And, um, but I think it's also been a growing process and that you could kind of be held up as a model where, you know, the great, the great majority of players who are going to be, who are going to be subject to these new laws you know, are are not at the elite levels. They're at the participatory level, which is, I think, where community and sport can actually make the biggest difference. And here you have, with Wupta, an example of a community in sport that has wrestled with this issue and continues to, but has found a successful model for inclusion. And I would just, you know, um, can you take out a billboard in Times Square? How do you actually, you know, get out this message? Wait, no, this happens. It happens currently, this kind of inclusivity of play. And here we can we can tell you how it's happening. I wish we could take out a billboard. Um, the, you know, I think that we we are fully aware of how barriers to entry to the sport impact folks. Um, and I think that the other thing that we're trying to do is um, we are we are not perfect at inclusion. In fact, we consider ourselves a work in progress. Um, and in particular, this summer with the murder of George Floyd, uh, I think the leadership in our organization had some real reckoning um, to think about the policies that we've created that have caused harm uh, to Black folks in the community. And we continue to work on frameworks for how we can improve as a sport and as a community. Um, but I think the difference for us is making sure that we are always growing and that we don't get stuck in this place of white privilege or white fragility where we're so confused about how to move forward that we're not actually hearing what people are saying. So it, I think it really starts with um, sitting down and listening with community members to see what the harm is actually uh, that's transpiring as a result of your policies. And honestly, any sport can do it. Yeah, you know, as as white women, I know, and as a white woman, I know I have a lot to unlearn um, in addition to a lot to learn. And but I, but I find it so refreshing because I've so many times worked in companies that'll say like, you know, oh, we're diverse. We want to be diverse and then sit back and wait for diversity to come to them instead of actively taking steps to try to bring different kinds of people into the organization. So how do you guys do that? Uh, well, I think the pandemic has provided us an opportunity of pause since we came forward and said that we really truly don't want to endanger lives uh, during a pandemic by playing our sport, we have taken the time over the last several months to sit down and really think deeply about our policies. Uh, we created, uh, the way forward for us was that we created um, a project called the Art Project, which is an anti-racism task force. And what we've done is uh, we put the word out and said, we're looking to compensate um, a handful of BIPOC uh, folks from our community to help us examine uh, the harm that we've caused through roller derby uh, and really to think about how we could structure this uh, to be a whole lot more inclusive and better for the community. And so we've almost finished phase one of that process, which was really sort of taking a, um, a broad overview of the sport and coming up with the most pressing issues for us to tackle first. And then phase two is going to be uh, really thinking about how we can roll out some of that change across the organization, 
But it has meant that white leadership within the WFTDA has had a lot of work to do in terms of learning. We've uh, taken classes. We're currently doing a handful of readings collectively that we're coming back to talk to each other about. Um, so I think just doing some work, right? Like thinking about where you can start, um, thinking about how you can structure things so that you are getting out of that sort of um, white space of thinking, right? Like yeah. our, our concept for this was we don't necessarily have the tools to think differently. So we do need some help, uh, which is why we started the task force. Erica, I cannot thank you enough for joining us today. I, I just, I, I, I'm, I continue to follow you. Um, I continue to see what you're about. I just think you have such a great overview between, you know, what is happening on the ground when it comes to women's sports, but then also kind of internationally uh, given roller derby's reach. And, you know, yeah, I don't, I'm not even sure how many players does roller derby have or did have before the pause? How many active players did you all have? Uh, I think we had something like 50,000 globally. Right. So I, I just don't, I think, I think the power of this group is underestimated. Um, and I think it probably has to do with a lot of the uh, traditional structures and systems that we have in sports and our decision-making about who we give attention to, who we want to partner with and who broadcasters feel is, is worth inclusion. Um, and so I continue to hold out hope that, that, you know, I get to watch the WIFTA finals uh, on ESPN or CBS or some other major broadcaster in the next year or two. Um, but anyway, thank you so much for coming on the ladies room today to talk to us about WIFTA and about these policies. Well, before Thanks for having be, me, <laughs> Erica, before you go, so, you know, I've been listening to Jane talk about roller derby since we started this podcast and before. Um, and I, so I'm, I'm a woman in my forties who is a former athlete who now has been relegated to like yoga, um, which doesn't really fuel the competitive fire the way that some things do. Am I too old to get into roller derby? And if not, where do I start? No way. Not. You are not, <laughs> not at all. Um, the thing that's cool is we have over 460 members uh, clubs throughout the world. And I know there are several in your area, Julie. So um, if you go to WFTDA.com, you can search all of the, the clubs that we have throughout the world to figure out which ones are closest to you. And again, I think our uh, recovery is going to make um, some of the in-person participation maybe a couple of months away, <laughs> knock on wood. Uh, but it's a good time for you to go and, and contact your local clubs to figure out how you can get involved. Because when they're back up and running, it's going to be a real fun time. So if you, if you want to get involved, you start with WFTDA's website, WFTDA's yes. website, and go from there. All right. That is yep. good to know. And it'll be a level playing field, Julie. Everybody's going to be starting from the same place. Okay, it's that's true. Because I can't remember the last time I put on a pair of skates, but I feel, I feel, I mean, I did the rollerblading thing like in the 90s. That's not applicable. No. <laughs> um, I did too, though, Julie. I, I used to rollerblade around Manhattan and I can't believe I, like, if you could do that, roller derby's great. Awesome. I'm fired up. Let's go. Let's do it. You have the temperament. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know I do. <laughs> <laughs> Erica, thank you so much. Erica Vanstone, Executive Director of the Women's Flat Track Derby Association, or WUFTA. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks.
Jane, I'm so glad that that we had Erica on. Um, you brought her to my attention. And of course, now I'm following her on Twitter and everything, and she's amazing. Um, but wow, what a great guest. And it's so refreshing to hear um, a lot of the things that she said about the way the league's handled COVID. Yes. And that is what kind of, I mean, in addition to playing roller derby, but that's kind of why I uh, got back in touch with her again. Um this year is because they put together this really innovative, you know, seven phase plan for returning to play. And I just thought, you know, we oftentimes are looking and certainly back in March, we were like, what's the NCAA going to do? What's the NBA going to do to kind of figure out how different leagues and really how our society was going to approach what was happening with COVID. And, and here it is uh, not coming out of the big leagues because those are all being driven by these economic interests Whereas a, you know, a grassroots run sport like roller derby, which is able to put uh, players first, really had to think innovatively about how you're going to bring back a full contact sport. And I almost think it's misplaced to expect the NFL or expect the NHL to have a plan. And maybe we should be listening to, to women in this and we should be looking at the way they're thinking about this and putting uh, something ahead of economics in terms of the decision-making that's being made to come back to play. Yeah, it's like New Zealand. They have no COVID because exactly. of just into Arden. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's right. And I think that, you know, it, it's the NCAA, the NFL, they were never going to make any other decision because they're just too, there's too much money to lose. I, I wrote a piece over at Deadspin about the fact that the, the Big Ten had 700 people Who's the Big Ten or the NCAA? Anyway, maybe the NCAA has 700 people working in Indianapolis that like were going to get laid off or furloughed or something. And I'm like, why are 700 people relying on the jobs of unpaid teenagers? Like that is just insane to me. 700 adults are dependent on teenagers going out there and putting themselves on the line so that these, I mean, that is just crazy. And And so it's the same kind of thing. I mean, I just don't think they can, that too many people rely on it. And, and, uh, you know, if you look, the New York Times kept track of, of how many cases of COVID were linked back to college athletic departments, and it was in the thousands. And for that to be, and again, you know, we might not, well, you know, um, Cam Newton came out and has said that he had real difficulty recovering from COVID and he thinks that that's part of the struggle that he had yeah. um, last season. And I don't think we've heard the stories of athletes who contracted this and were fine and then had something else. I mean, these stories are yet to emerge. And the fact that the potential for that risk was completely discounted in the face of economics, uh, you know, the, and that's the thing is that Little leagues shouldn't be following the model that puts economics first. Right. High schools shouldn't be following the model that puts economics first. They're, basketball leagues, your community rec leagues should not be following that model because we have to try to ensure some level of safety, I think, for our for our children, for ourselves. And play is, play is important, not just for the professional athletes that we watch, you know, on television and for commercial advertising purposes, play is important because it's important to us and to being healthy and to feeling community. And I just love that there there are people out there um, who are thinking about it in those terms and who are thinking, okay, what is it we really need to have in place to be safe? Where do we need these levels of community spread to be, et cetera? Yeah. And and we say this every week, but I I really think there is going to be a study at some point that is going to show us how much 
uh, professional and college sports contributed to the spread of COVID and how much harder it was. Because, I mean, these guys are traveling from city to city. They're staying in hotel rooms. I mean, it, it, it's it's impossible that this hasn't made the COVID situation worse. Um, and, and, you know, you can't, you can't just prove a negative, like, or you can't prove a negative because, right. you know, so many leagues have been like, well, you know, we don't, we haven't had any, um, we haven't had any spread, but you don't know because people are asymptomatic and they don't get tested and they don't get counted as a COVID case, yet they could still spread. Right. So this idea that somehow, hey, you know, look at how great we did. It's uh, it's a lie at this point. You can't actually, you can't say that with any sort of scientific certainty. Or you could be like the NFL and come out and say, look how great we did, even though everyone knows that you did a terrible job and that hundreds of guys tested positive. So, Right. Right. Exactly. And we had to play games on Tuesdays and Wednesdays because so many people had COVID and there were no quarterbacks and no wide receivers. And I, this NFL season just blew my mind. What they mean is that they were still able to get that dollar. Yeah. Uh, when, they say, when they say they were successful, it means that their pockets are still full. Denver it's had that- no quarterbacks, but we still put a team on the field. Got that money. Right. Hey, um, before we go, I I don't know how if if this is the kind of thing you would watch or if you would you know be too upset by it, but I watched uh, Allen versus Pharaoh last night on HBO. Really? Do you know about this? No. So this is the Dylan Pharaoh documentary on Woody Allen. Oh, oh yeah. I yeah. yes, I've heard about this. So last night was part one. Oh, it's devastating. Is it devastating? I will watch. And I just think like for for so, and I think of all the people that have been Woody Allen movies and everything, and it's just, ugh. Right. I, I, read, I, I read Ronan Farrow's book last year and mm-hmm. heard him speak uh, before the world shut down, um, downtown, down at the Cooper Union. And uh, wow, you know, he is, uh, he is a, he's a, he's power, he's a powerful person when it comes to discussing those issues. Yeah. Yeah, I thought his book was, I listened to the audiobook actually, and him doing all the different, because um, there's like Russians and Israelis and everything in his book, and him mm. doing the accents for all the different <laughs> people was hilarious. But, you know, I was just thinking watching this, like, uh, Dylan Farrow has been saying this for 20 years, um, and now it's like to get people to believe her, she has to come on a documentary, lay her soul bare, tell every gruesome detail of what happened to her. And and I was just like, that in and of itself really upsets me. Like, you have to come out. Like, women are constantly being forced to discuss their trauma in order to get people to believe them. She also had to have a very powerful male seconding her story. Yes. Very true. Yeah, yeah. but it, it's really good. Um, I think it's, it, it's not, uh, I mean, they don't go into, like, horrible detail. I mean, it's bad enough, but it's not, you know, graphic. Um, but man, it's just weird. And when you hear how many people saw stuff then and came to Mia Farrow and were like, I saw this and it struck me as weird and stuff like that. The fact that Woody Allen has been able to just operate with impunity in Hollywood for this long just kind of blew my mind. People really don't want to believe the worst about other people. I agree. I think that is, that is, that is an absolute truism. And, and it, yes, I, I agree a hundred percent, especially after he married, his adopted daughter, <laughs> sixteen-year-old daughter, yeah, which is which is, I I, I can't watch Woody Allen anymore. Uh, I haven't been able to for decades. Yeah, um, and you know that's a, I, that's something that you and I struggle with. I know, um, because 
it's very difficult for me to know that and then support someone as an artist. Mm -hmm. And, but if you take that to the logical conclusion, then you can't go to a Pablo Picasso museum. There are many things that you can't do. So I always wonder where the line is on that. But for me, it's, it's like, what does my gut tell me? And my gut tells me not to watch Woody Allen movies. (laughs) My gut tells me the same. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I just, I didn't want to get into a whole like, you know, thing about child sexual abuse and grooming and all that kind of stuff, but it's really well done. Um, it was just part one last night. So if anybody's looking for something to watch, um, I highly recommend it. It was very good. And I do love Ronan Farrow. Like he is such a great advocate. Um, and it, and you're right. It sucks that she has to have an advocate like that in order for people to start caring about her story again. Yes, it's one of the many infuriating things about being a reporter on this issue or being a woman in the world, really, yeah, isn't it? For sure. Did you see my snarky comment to Tom Brady yesterday? No. Did you <laughs> tell? So Tom Brady's terrible at Twitter. And he throws out this, like, what should I do for the next five and a half months? And so I just couldn't help myself. I responded, read the sexual assault lawsuit against Antonio Brown. <laughs> Oh, Julie, your delight. <laughs> I went to Trevor Bauer yesterday, too. I don't know what was going on with me. I get, we haven't talked about Trevor Bauer. Maybe we'll save that for next week. I mean, he is a train wreck. Yeah, I, I do like I do like the clap back with Tom Brady, though. That's very funny. Thank I wonder you. if he'll pick you up on that. I don't, I don't think so. What, what what was the response for your from your from your fans and detractors? Uh, just I just some likes. I didn't see. I didn't like go into it. I didn't look at it. You know, I, and I didn't like make a big thing out of it. I just replied to him. So I don't know how many people saw it. People probably just rolled their eyes and were like, "There goes DeCaro again." <laughs> Sometimes you got to pick your spots. It seems yeah. like that one was justified for sure. I felt pretty good about it. He did ask. So, <laughs> yeah, I know. It was like he solicited my advice. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been another episode of The Ladies' Room. Thanks so much for listening. Hope that you'll give us a follow on social media at Jane Sports and at Julie DeCaro. If you like the show, please go over to Apple Podcasts and give us a good rating and subscribe. And if you don't like it, you can just say nothing at all and and not worsen our rating that people already, we've got a bunch of five-star ratings and one-star ratings. Nothing in between. Means we're we're certainly polarizing. Yes, we are. <laughs> Can't wait to see what happens when my book comes out in Amazon reviews. <laughs> All right. Uh, we will see you guys next week. Thanks for stopping by on the Ladies' Room. <laughs>